available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome everyone back to the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together we make the podcast of champions talking all things Pac-12 football. Obviously, Pac-12 football is on hiatus as with the rest of the sports world and the rest of the world, basically. So, But we wanted to continue our spring preview series. It's mostly about, hey, what what did the teams lose? What are they looking forward to this season? Maybe you know some of the teams have started spring football, so we get a little bit of a glimpse of what they're doing. And we're going to go over all that we've done. I believe six of the teams, and so we got six more to go. This week we're going to do Oregon and California, so a couple of Pac-12 North schools, of course, Oregon won the Rose Bowl this year, Dave. So this, uh, it'll be interesting. We're going to talk to Matt Prem uh, with Duck Territory and then later on Jackson Moore with uh, uh, Bear Territory. So we've got a couple of territories today. Yeah, it's very exciting stuff. We're going to talk to the best team in the Pac-12 and then the team with the most valuable player in the Pac-12 from last year. So it's very exciting ah, stuff. Chase I speak, Garbers. of course, exactly. The man, the myth. Um. I'm 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 sane. I, I don't know why you're asking, Ryan. <laughs> Everything's you're fine. Everything's fine here. I don't yeah. know. I don't know why you keep pressing me on it. Uh, it's uh, obviously this is a, a difficult time for everybody here in the sports world in the United States and the, across the globe. We want to try to bring a little normalcy to your day and keep what we've no, been we doing don't. and keep doing. No, That's- no. That's not what's going to We're happen. not what we're doing? That's not what? It's going to be weird. Are we Let's doing it for the paycheck? Because we don't get paid. So what? What? why are we doing this then? Uh, inertia, I think. <laughs> it's one of those things, if we stopped, like, when would we get it back going? That's true. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. No, it's it's pure forward momentum right now. We are a rock rolling downhill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are. And, we, you know, we want you guys to be part of the show. I think we got more questions this week. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, you're going to email the show pack 12 podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us a question or a comment or talk about your favorite Disney princess, whatever you want. Ty- uh, did you watch, um, uh, what's it called? Tiger King. Have you seen that one, Dave? No, everyone keeps talking about it. And honestly, I, I think this is where my true contrarianism comes in. You the won't do the it. act of everyone talking about it is only making me more like, oh, I'm probably never going to watch that. So, okay, if you like shows where there's no good guys, like everyone's an asshole, everyone's the worst. Like, you're like, oh, wow, that guy's a jerk. Oh, he's terrible. And they're like, oh, here's the guy. Oh, that guy must be nice. Nope. Oh, he's even worse. And then, oh, this girl, oh, this woman, oh, she's trying to sit. Nope, nope, she's awful too. It's like everybody is terrible. So that's why I thought you might like it because nobody's good. No, I don't like that stuff. 
I, I like um, I, I totally yeah no that's a that's a that's a misread. I don't like I don't like the kind of like you know just piles of crappy people being crappy to each other. Hate that crap. Yeah. All right. Well. Um, so we'll, you probably won't watch it, but if you do, that's something we could talk about. Also, uh, if you want to call or text us, the number is 424-532-0678. You can tweet us at Pac12Podcast. The website is Pac12Podcast.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, anywhere you can get your podcast. You can find the Podcast of Champions. Please rate and subscribe. We love that. Five-star ratings are awesome. And you can also go to our Reddit page and chat about stuff. Reddit.com slash r slash podcast of champions. Hey, Dave, before we get into the previews, we, there was some uh, really unfortunate news coming out of uh, Pullman, Washington. So uh, Theo Lawson tweeted it this morning, and it's uh, Bryce Beekman, who's a 22-year-old redshirt senior, started all 13 games at free safety for Washington State last season. Uh, he died, according to Pullman police. So, um, and, you know, obviously, just you hate to see that. We've already seen too much tragedy up there in Pullman. So uh, hearts go out to everyone up there, you know, dealing with the coronavirus, but then also dealing with something like that, the death of a, a young man. Yeah, that's that's, that's very sad. Um, yeah, and I don't think there are any details on what happened or why, but um, obviously deeply, deeply unfortunate and Hope the uh, Beekman family is hanging in there. Uh, but yeah, the Washington State community—that's that's a that's been a that's been a tough year. So it's been tough. And uh, I, I the only thing I read that there was no foul play uh, expected, or they didn't, you know, uh, you know, feel that that was going on. So uh, you know, another thing for Nick Rolovich to kind of deal with up there. We've it's you know just you hate to see that. You know, there's we get so tied up and caught up in what's going on on the field and the off season and stuff. But the, you know, these are young men that have such promising lives ahead and you just hate when one gets cut short like that. Yeah. Yeah. Deeply said. Um, all right. Well, we're going to kind of shift gears here again, you know, our thoughts and prayers going out to everyone up there in Pullman and the, the Cougar family. Um, we're going to do so a couple of previews. So a couple of guys I really like uh, talking to, uh, first up, Dave, we got to talk about the Oregon Ducks. I mean, did you know they went? They won the Rose Bowl last year. Did you know that you went? I did. I remember that I went. Hey, it must have been memorable. It, well, they won, unlike you know the year before when Washington lost. So uh, I actually remember doing that. I think it was. I went to the parade both times, and it was so cold for the Washington game. Like it was hard to remember what what you know. You just wanted to get the heck out of there. It was a little more. It was a little more mild for the uh, Oregon game, so I, that was more fun. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, nice. All right, well, let's uh, jump right in and uh, talk about the Ducks. All right, everybody, we are going to talk some Oregon Ducks football with Matt Prem. He's he's with DuckTerritory.net. We got Matt on the line right now. Matt, thanks for coming on, man. How are you? Doing all right. Trying to survive with a house full of kids but uh doing okay we're we're we're, we're surviving that's all yeah, you can do that's all you can do yeah. you can only survive with a house full of kids you can't thrive thriving's out of the picture but you can survive and that's the important thing so are we helping you right now that we're like get you something out of the yeah. regular routine like just do i, I gotta yeah. go do a podcast all right guys yes i i have every person in my household so two kids under the age of eight and 
my wife are in one of the kids' rooms playing some kind of board game or something, and I have the rest of the house quiet. So, yes, you are helping me get some right. peace and quiet. Just you know, even, even after we're done talking, you should just continue to talk to yourself <laughs> so they think <laughs> that you're still being yeah. interviewed. You have you have children, I can tell, because yes. I, I I implement that all the time. <laughs> so, it's, Dave, it sounds like he owes us one. So we're, we've done him a favor. So we're, we're going to call in this favor later on at some point, Matt. Seems right. Sounds good. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us in this uh, crazy, uncertain time. We wanted to continue, like we said before, with the spring previews. Uh, Oregon did get four practices in that you got to kind of check out parts of those. Um, maybe we'll just start there. You know, there's, we'll get into some of the bigger topics, you know, replacing Justin Herbert and all that kind of stuff. But what, uh, what did you see from those first uh, four practices uh, under Mario Cristobal? Yeah, I mean, it, it was four practices, three of which were in shorts. One of one, uh, one of the fourth one was in shells, and so no real tackling. Not that they're going to do a ton of that in spring football, anyways, but. I think from an offensive standpoint, the most notable thing was Oregon was working on the RPOs and clear run plays with the quarterback. That was something from an Oregon fan perspective that they were clamoring for all of last season and were hoping to see a little bit of it the year before even too, back in 2018. Uh, when Herbert was a sophomore and when he was a freshman he ran the ball quite a bit but then midway through his sophomore season obviously he broke that collarbone and uh he was out for an extended period of time and after that injury it, it the shift happened of how often Oregon would expose him to running the football and it was drastically down as a senior uh and, and so that was big news for us of seeing them actually work on running the quarterback, whether it be an RPO or a pure option. But they, you know, they allowed us to see that. We were not allowed to film it for various reasons, but we were certainly allowed to watch it, and that was interesting. And then new offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead came out and just blatantly said, yeah, we're going to run the quarterback, and, and it's, it, it, it's going to be a part of the offense. And he didn't say uh, a set number at that interview. In a prior interview, on a radio show up in Eugene, up in Portland, excuse me, he did say, he did throw out a number of eight to 12 times per game. They would call a play in which the, the quarterback had the option to run the football. So that means RPOs or options or designed runs. Um, in the interview with us, he, he did say that you know, we're not going to run the quarterback 25 times. That's just not who we have. They have on, on, uh, on the roster. And, so that's that's notable news offensively wise. And, you know, we're going to see how much of, of the offense they got installed with Joe Moorhead as new offense coordinator. He replaced Marcus Royo, who became the head coach at UNLV. Um, defensively, the, the biggest thing that we took away was they were doing some mixing and some matching in the secondary and. Defense coordinator Andy Avalos talked a lot about in his first year being versatile up front in the front seven and having guys being able to play multiple positions. And they kind of achieved that the second half of the season. And now he said that the goal for spring ball for them was to, to figure that out defensively in the, in the secondary. And, and what that meant was is Thomas Graham, uh, a guy that has he's going to be a senior this fall. He started every single 
year at Oregon, his first three years. Uh, I believe he didn't start week one of his freshman year, and then after that, he started every game. Uh, he was moved to second string safety during spring ball. And Crystal Ball and Avalos both said that, look, we're experimenting. He's still going to be a corner. He's still going to be the starting cornerback. But they're just trying to find ways to get their four best guys on the field. And I should say five because they like to play five defensive backs. That would be Thomas Graham and Diamond Lenore, who are the, the returning starting cornerbacks. Both are seniors. And then Michael Wright will be a sophomore next year. He's probably the, the, the best. He's just not the oldest. Uh, he came off the bench last year. So it's figuring out how to get him on the field. Jerome McKinley is a sophomore. He was a, a freshman All-American uh, this past year, bouncing between nickel and safety. And then Javon Holland, who was a sophomore this past season and was a freshman All-American two years ago. He also plays safety and nickel. So they're trying to find ways of getting those five guys on the field at one time. And that's notable because Nick Pickett, he's a senior, and he's a four-year starter at Oregon. And then on top of that, there's Brady Breeze, who's going to be a senior, and he was the Rose Bowl defensive MVP. So two guys that are prominent defensive players could be rotated in and out. Wow. I'm going to let Ryan ask – about Justin Herbert because I know he he just he's itching to. I want to hear about the <laughs> offensive line. Um, so last year's front five, I think, lost four starters. Am I right? In Throckmorton, Hanson, Warmack, and Lemieux, all gone. Correct. All four of those guys are gone, and then Brady Aiello is also gone, and he had I want to say right around thirty starts over his four year career uh, so, as well. He. About half of that came as freshman or sophomore seasons. But, uh, yeah, they, they've lost a ton of talent. So what is that? I mean, I know it's in shorts for the first part of spring, so how can you even know? But obviously you've got you've got one side of the line locked down with Sewell, but what, what are you seeing from those other four spots? I mean, who's going to fill those roles? Yeah, Sewell is back, and he's the best lineman in the country. Uh, right. And that's not my, that's not my opinion. That's, that's the Outland Trophy thing. So they feel confident about that, but everybody else is up for grabs. Now on paper, every player that's being replaced will, their replacement is a higher rated recruit coming out of high school. Steven Jones will be the right tackle more than likely. He was a four-star guy was actually rated higher. I believe than Penny Sewell was coming out of high school. He redshirted this past season. It was weird. They, they played him for about seven or eight games Uh, his true freshman year. And then last season as a true sophomore, they played him in four to redshirt him. So he's a redshirt sophomore in 2020. Uh, Malasala Oamave uh, Lualu is a former number one offensive lineman from the junior college ranks as part of the 2019 recruiting class. He redshirted last year. Uh, He played in four games and then sat out the remainder of the, of the season. He's slotted in to play left guard. And then the other two spots, the center position and the right guard position, are kind of up for grabs. You kind of have a couple different guys bouncing in between different spots. Uh, Alex Forsyth is a four-star offensive lineman. He's a junior. He, he can play center. He can play guard. He can play tackle. 
I think his position is going to be kind of determined with who stands out at the other spot. Does a center emerge and then they play Alex Forsythe at right guard? Or is there a better player that steps up at, at guard, whether it be a TJ Bass, who is one of the top Juco linemen in the country, uh, or maybe it's a Chris Randazzo, who's a redshirt freshman this coming season, or excuse me, redshirt sophomore uh, next year. Um, and then Jonah Tuwanu, who is a, a four-star guy that USC really tried to get late and he stayed home for Oregon. And it does, does he maybe play guard or does he bounce outside the right tackle and Stephen Jones bounces down the left guard? Uh, so they got a lot of options for those final two spots. I think Forsyth will be a starter at some point where it's unknown. But the, the basics of it for Oregon is, is they can feel pretty confident knowing that a lot of the guys that have gone on uh, are being replaced by players on paper that were theoretically more talented than them than coming out of high school. Um, like uh, Dave said, we got to talk about Justin Herbert. I got to see the Rose Bowl in person where he ran for three touchdowns uh, in that game. Exciting win uh, over the Wisconsin Badgers. And I wanted to kind of see what it's shaping up. Obviously, you only got four practices in. Who are the main candidates to replace him? And um, maybe a little bit on the Rose Bowl, were you surprised that uh, he was running as much as he was? Because you said, you know, after like that sophomore year, they really didn't run him very much. Yeah, 100% we were shocked by that. And after the Rose Bowl game was over, we we talked to Cristobal postgame. We talked to Herbert postgame. Was that the game plan all along? And they basically kind of came out and said that season was over. And they made it through unscathed and the, the whole playbook was open. And it was just kind of like, what the hell? Like, you, you, you could have had this the whole year. But I, I get their logic. They, just, they, they really didn't want to see Herbert go down for even if it was one or two weeks, just because they could have had a really special year if he stayed healthy with all the pieces that were there. Now, replacing him is going to be pretty difficult. Um, but this is, a, again, another position where the guys replacing him are higher rated recruits than Herbert was coming out of high school. Now I think Herbert was grossly underrated coming out of high school. He, and part of that was his fault. He, he just didn't go to camps. He didn't go to all American games. He stayed home in Eugene and, and, and played other sports, which is probably the right thing to do, but he didn't you know go out and market himself uh, to get to your question. Who replaces him? It's Tyler Shuck. He's going to be a redshirt sophomore. He was an elite 11 participant, formerly committed to North Carolina, was a four-star guy. He flipped when Willie Taggart was the head coach to Oregon and then stuck with the Ducks after Taggart left to Florida State. Um, this is a guy that's mobile like Herbert. He's certainly not as as big. Uh, you know, Herbert was 6'6 and almost 6'7". Uh, Shuck is six foot four and he's a little bit lighter than Herbert was, but he's not a string bean either, but he's probably the more mobile guy than I, than, than Herbert was. Um, Herbert certainly was so big that when he got going, he, sorry, my kids thing is going off. Um, you're busy. (laughs) (laughs) When Herbert, uh, was running, he was tough to bring down, but Shuck is quicker. Uh, he, it's his job to, to lose. And honestly, if someone else beats him, um, it, it, it's going to be pretty shocking. Jay Butterfield's a four-star quarterback. He's a true freshman. He enrolled early. Uh, Robbie Ashford's a four-star quarterback. He'll be here. 
He's a dual threat guy. He'll be here in the summer. Kale Millen is a redshirt freshman. Uh, he's, you know, he was hurt all of last year though. So, you know, he, he's basically a true freshman as well. Um, so it's kind of Tyler Shuck's job. Like it, it's going to take a lot to lose him. Uh, I know a lot of Oregon's players, I know internally, we've heard a lot of good things from coaching staff members, from people that have gone to practice during the season of, of his expectations. He's supposed to have a really big year, but you know, as you guys know, like first year quarterbacks, sometimes they are superstars right away. And, and sometimes, you know, they, they need some time and sometimes they don't work either. Uh, but the optimism around Shuck is pretty high right now. It's good to hear. Um, switching gears a little bit to the defense. Um, looking at it, I think that uh, it still looks like the defense should be very good, but replacing Troy Dye, who I think, Ryan, what do you think? Played at Oregon for like seven years? Yeah, he was there quite years? a while. He yeah. Was there a bit. yeah. Um, I think it was that he basically started every single game he was there. But um, replacing yeah. him, obviously a big task. Um, who do you see? As, I mean, I know I, I know there's another Sewell coming in who could play a little bit of linebacker. Um, but who do you see kind of filling into his role? Um, and who's going to be like the leader of this defense now that uh, now that die has gone? Yeah, Dai was probably the heart and soul of the defense for the last four years. And statistically, he had his worst year as a senior. But I think that was just because of the upgrades uh, every other position uh, around him. He didn't have to cover up so many guys' mistakes. I uh, actually argue that you know, if you watch him on film and just don't pay attention to the stats, he had his best season as a senior. It just He wasn't called upon to cover up so many mistakes. Um, who replaces him? That happened last year. Uh, Oregon was very smart in terms of Die ran everything his first three seasons. He was the guy that got the defense in charge. He, he lined everybody up. He made audibles. Uh, and then he was asked to, to basically be the guy in the center of the field and cover up every mistake. And as a senior, they moved him uh, a little. They, they shaded him to one side of the field. He's typically the strong side. Uh, and they had Isaac Slade Matuatia, who was a redshirt sophomore for them last, last year. He called the defense. He audibled. He made the checks. He got everyone lined up. Uh, he got guys into proper alignment. And so he's the – sta- the staff is really high on him. And they – from, from a, a leadership standpoint. And he's, he's back. He had a really good year as a sophomore for Oregon. He'll be the, the teeth of the defense and, and – the quarterback, if you will, of the defense. Now, the most talented players on the team will probably Isaac will probably be one or 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 two, but I I have a sneaking suspicion that Oregon's going to end up starting Justin Flo and or Noah Sewell on that defense. Uh, Justin Flo in the inside, uh, Sewell has the ability to play all over the field, whether it's as a hand on the ground defensive end or an outside linebacker or an inside linebacker. He's coming in starting as an inside linebacker, but um, they've got a couple other guys, MJ Cunningham, Samson New, but Drew Dorless, uh, Drew Mathis, excuse me. Uh, but none of those three guys are as talented as Flo or Sewell. And, and so I would, I would anticipate Isaac being one starter and then Flo and Sewell kind of handling the other position inside for Oregon's defense. The uh, coaching wise, you know, it's crystal ball's second year, uh, but you know, new offensive coordinator, you mentioned Joe Moorhead, 
new defensive coordinator, Andy Avalos. Um, what kind of changes have have they made so far? We already talked about Joe Moorhead wanting to run the quarterback, but how different does it kind of look out there the, the first few practices you saw? Um, I would I would say if you're looking for like an offensive comp, go watch Penn State when they played USC in the Rose Bowl. Um, that, that's going to be kind of what Oregon's offense is going to look like. Uh, they're going to have a lot of wide outs. They're going to have some tight ends, uh, you know, some formations where they use double tight, you know, they'll have some formations where they, they go four wide and, you know, they're predominantly using three receivers. They'd like to have one of those three be a real tall, lanky, big playmaker type. Um, you know, Jawan Johnson was that guy this year, this coming season, it's going to be asked, uh, to, to come from you know Brian Addison, who is a redshirt sophomore, or it's going to also go to Devin Williams, who transferred from USC. Uh, he will be a redshirt sophomore as well. So they'd like a you know a six foot four, six five, six six, real tall, real lanky, you know possession type guy. They want a really you know quick, agile, speedy guy in the slot, and then the third receiver. You know it's kind of a, a mix in between, but they're going to run the quarterback. They're going to go tempo. Uh, they're they're gonna have power. They're gonna have dive. They're gonna have traps and all that. But I I would argue just go back to to Penn State of 2016, 2015, and and watch those seasons. And that's a lot of what you're gonna see at Oregon under Joe Moorhead. Defensively, I don't really imagine that they're gonna much make many changes from what they have from a person you know from a from a formation standpoint next season just because Troy Dye is gone but basically every other key piece to Oregon's defense is back and that's a big reason why Oregon is is being hyped as a a top 10 top 15 top 12-ish type team I mean some people are even out there talking you know top six or top seven because their defense was really good last year one of the best in the country and basically 10 out of 11 starters are back yeah, and the defense, I mean, clearly looks like it should be elite. What do you think needs to – what question do you think needs to be answered offensively most for this team to reach that potential? Because, I mean, you are talking about a new starter at quarterback and then four new starters in the offensive line, which for any old team is not necessarily a recipe for success. Why do you think it would be necess- – why, why do you think it would be different for Oregon? Um. Well, for one – They've got the best offensive lineman in the country. I think when you, you can feel confident about the blind side of your quarterback being protected, that changes a lot of the dynamic that you have. Um, Steven Jones is another guy that that's really highly sought of. I mean, the only reason why he didn't play last season was because of Penay Sewell, who is, I, I've talked about him, and then Calvin Throckmorton, <laughs> uh, you know, one of the best offensive tackles in, in the country as well. I mean, Oregon had two of probably the five best offensive tackles in college football last season. And so the reason why Stephen Jones didn't play last year was just because literally like two of the best players in the country at his position were on the same team. And he, he would have started for a majority of the PAC 12 uh, if it wasn't for that. So I, I think Oregon feels really good about those two guys on the edge. It's, it's just, can you find the right combination up front, I, I'm more concerned about that than I am of Tyler Shuck because right. 
I feel pretty confident in Tyler Sutton, what we've seen out of him in limited snaps. He played at USC and looked really good. He played early on against Nevada and looked really good in that one as well. Uh, Oregon's got their three top running backs back from last season. Uh, they, they, they combined for over 2,000 yards rushing. And, you know, no guy had over 200 carries on the season uh, and no fewer than 85. So it was a, you know, committee approach. But, you know, C.J. Verdell has rushed for over 1,000 yards his first two seasons. Uh, so they've got talent at the running back spot. I think they've got talent at the receiver spot. They've got some pieces at tight end. That's another place that they have to replace a senior in Jacob Breland, who was arguably the best tight end in the country before he got down hurt with an injury for the rest of the year, um, statistically speaking. Uh, so I'm more concerned about the offensive line than I am of everything else, because if Oregon can get the offensive line figured out, even if it's it's ground and pound and and they're not a predominantly uh, throwing team, they, they rely on the run. They have a defense that can win games for you. You just have to score 17, 20 points. And in today's college football, that that's pretty easy. Most teams out there can score 17 or 20 points. And that's just how good Oregon's defense has been in the last year and a half, where they, they've held opponents you know, mostly under 15 points per game. So if, if you can get to that 17 or 20 mark, you're, you're going to be in a position where pretty much every game you can win. That's Matt Pram, Duck Territory. He does a great job covering the Ducks here on the 24-7 Sports Network. Uh, Dave, if you don't have anything else, we can let Matt go. You got you, you good? I'm, I'm good. So, Matt, after we hang up, again, just keep talking. Just keep <laughs> talking to yourself, and that'll buy you some time. I appreciate it. I'll do that. All right. Matt, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, let's shift gears. We're going from the Oregon Ducks to the California Golden Bears. California Golden Bears. I had the button right there, and I still said it without hitting the button. So, well, we hit the button at least. We we have Jackson Moore. Uh, he does a great job covering the Bears for BearTerritory.net right here on the 24-7 Sports Network. How you doing, Jackson? I'm doing well, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we got to talk about Cal football. It's the third year for uh, head coach Justin Wilcox. And we talked to Oregon. They had a couple new coordinators. Same thing on the uh, the California side. Even though Tim DeRuiter's still around, Peter Sermon looks like he's been promoted and he's going to be the the main defensive coordinator. Um, but maybe we'll start off with that. What have you? What have your impressions been with uh, Bill Musgrave at the new offensive coordinator spot, and then Peter Sermon taking over for DC? Yeah, you know Bill Musgrave is a really interesting move. Um, you know, not because of his background. I mean, he's been an NFL quarterbacks coach and coordinator for the last couple of decades now. But uh, the fact that they go from a spread offense before, and not just a spread offense, but one that returns basically every starter that they had last year uh, that had been installed for three years in a row that. Um, uh, they only have one senior on the depth chart, I believe, for the Red Box Bowl, and that was a, a second-string lineman. So you had a really good core coming back, and you, uh, a lot of people were uh, discouraged with Bo Baldwin's progression over the past couple of years, and so I don't think they were terribly sad to see him take the Cal Poly head coaching job in some ways, but uh, they were showing a lot of progress when Chase Garbers was healthy. And then now here comes Bill Musgrave, and he is to, uh, turning everything on its head with the group of guys that have been together now for a few years. You thought maybe this upcoming season would be 
before they really take off. And now it, it kind of feels like they're starting back from square one, which may not be the worst thing in the world either, because Cal's offense has definitely been its rough point for the past couple of years. But uh, I mean, you're looking at an offense that's going to huddle. They're going to run a lot of tight ends. They're going to use a fullback. Uh, they're going to snap under center a whole lot. So uh, really a, a different look for Cal on offense. And we'll see how well their players adjust to that, especially if um, their time in spring where they would normally be installing such a thing is not going to be able to take place here in the next couple of months. And then with Peter Sermon, a defensive coordinator, they've really tried to downplay it and um, you know, the coach Wilcox has said it's a, it's a collaborative effort. They have Peter Sermon, who's been a defensive coordinator before, obviously, uh, Tim DeRuiter, who is still around and is going to be he's going to have the title of co-defensive coordinator. Uh, they bring in Marcel Yates from Arizona as their new defensive backs coach. He's been a defensive coordinator. And then you've got Justin Wilcox, who made his living as a defensive coordinator until getting this first head coaching opportunity. So you have four guys that know how to run a defense and. Uh, they say the the top name which Sermon has now is more just about the title than anything else, but it also sounds like one of those things you hear coaches say in the spring, and then you <laughs> kind of look back and wonder how accurate that was, depending on how good or, or how much of a step back the defense might take when we're sitting around uh, at the end of the next season. Um, Chase Garbers last year, um, we've joked, and maybe not entirely joked that he was the MVP of the league last year, because if you look at the games where he started and played the full game, Cal was seven and Um <laughs> looking at this season, how do you see him building on that? Um, what, uh, what do you, what do you think kind of he can do in this new offense? Um, do you think it's a fit for him? What are, what are you kind of seeing there? Yeah. I'm curious to see how much of this, more of the pro style we see. It does seem like he was, fitting in pretty well in the spread. And the biggest thing that probably saved them with the spread was just the fact that Garbers is pretty mobile and he was able to get out of trouble with that spread offense, taking basically every snap and shotgun and getting out of trouble when needed, picking up uh, yards on the ground in many scenarios, whether it was designed or not. And that's because they suffered so many injuries on the offensive line and they were a mess at some points. And it kind of coincided as well with losing Garbers for a few games where the offense was just, about as bad as you could ever imagine. But uh, when he was healthy and when he had enough of his O-linemen to work with, uh, the Bears, they won every time he started. So um, it is going to be interesting to see how they adjust going forward. And uh, I think he really probably grew more mentally than anything else. I mean, he's of course, he's always had uh, the mobility and he's been able to throw, but they really put it together last season. And um, you know, I think... Just from his personal standpoint, I think I would have preferred him see it in that offense for another year. But I think the scheme and the offense as a whole might work a little bit better with the different uh, look. And I know Cal's bringing in a lot of new weapons to use around him for the next couple of years. I don't know how many of them are going to be able to break out onto the field right away. But it seems like everything in the offense is trending upwards. If they can just get him to be as effective in this new offense as he was in the last offense, uh, they should keep rolling. For uh, Cal this spring, we got to see, or you got to see, they were out there for four practices before everything got shut down thanks to the coronavirus uh, and the quarantine and all that. Um, any kind of big news or notes coming out of those first four practices or anything uh, that you guys got to see? Yeah, Coach Wilcox kind of came, came right out and said with the, the sermon thing, that was probably the biggest surprise. Uh, Cal had already had four new assistant coaches replacing previous coaches. So 
I thought everything was kind of done at that point, and suddenly there's a different defensive coordinator in name, and uh, Tim DeRuiter has been such a phenomenal coach coaching up that defense the past couple of years. It was a bit of a surprise, but my guess is that Sermon had offers to go take full-time defensive coordinator jobs elsewhere, and they wanted to make sure uh, that he wasn't going anywhere and that they kept that group together as much as possible. Um, otherwise, it was uh, you know a lot of discussion about the Cal taking snaps under center, which they hadn't done a whole lot of, of huddling, of just really doing the basic things that Bill Musgrave's offense is going to ask uh, that just these guys are just not used to. And you got to get those basics down before you really get into the intricacies of what might make this offense work going forward. And defensively, uh, the coin dang, who was, uh, I mean, if it wasn't for Evan Weaver, he would have been a, <laughs> the big name to know on uh, Cal's linebacker core. He's back, but he didn't participate in the spring practices that we got to see. So there was a big vacancy at the inside linebacker spots between those two and uh, a few defensive backs. So we're kind of trying to scope out who might be playing there. They've d- talked about a new uh, defensive back position, which may be more like um, a 4-2-5 nickel kind of player that they might implement a little bit more. Uh, moving corners and safeties around and uh, trying to find out who can replace the safeties that they're le- losing to. So uh, unfortunately, those 11 practices that we haven't seen and may not get to see uh, might have gone a long way in uh, getting some of that depth chart in order. With uh, Dang, does he play? So I know he's inside, but would he fill into Evan Weaver's role or would somebody else have to step into that role? How similar are they as players just for people who haven't you know, paid a lot of attention to, uh, to Cal linebacker play? Yeah, so uh, Weaver is, um, obviously, if you saw him play the past couple of years, really like an old-school kind of linebacker that just seems to make every play and make every tackle. Uh, not that Dang isn't, but he is six foot six and 240 pounds. He's as tall and as long as you're ever going to see a linebacker. And last year, they would use that sort of opposite of what you would think as a, a Weaver replacement, more so using him on the outside, rushing him from the outside, so... Uh, there's going to be a lot more dependency on him in the middle because there's definitely going to be a drop-off from Weaver to the next inside linebacker that joins him, but they may still also want to use him outside too. So in a lot of ways, he's a bit of a hybrid. I think numbers-wise, he'll probably eat up a big chunk of uh, Weaver's tackles. Dang already had over 100 himself, but that could go up even further next year. And um, But he's not anything close to a Weaver clone in terms of the body and his athleticism. So Dave would always joke that Cal, you don't stop offensing, don't offense, don't offense. Um, it looks like, you know, that's going to be more of a pro style offense. Maybe it meshes well with the kind of uh, just relentless defense that this Cal Bears team has shown. I thought Bo Baldwin would work. I mean, they were just scoring tons of points up there for, for whatever reason. Maybe it just wasn't the, the match between the offense and the defense that, that you, you want those to kind of complement each other. From what you've guys seen and what you've they've talked about, do you feel like this offense and defense might match a little bit, so it won't be such a lopsided team that you talk about Cal having this great you know defense and and not much of an offense? Well, you know, this past season was my first year covering Cal, and when I looked at the offense and started to study it, it, it didn't look like an offense that had a third year coordinator. It looked like an offense that was kind of starting over from scratch in a lot of ways. Well, the, the only good thing was that they kind of established that Garbers was their quarterback and it wasn't really for certain until he got rolling the first couple of games. But I was just really surprised that a lot of youth, you know, there was a very small senior class on offense and it, it got worse as the injuries piled up, especially on the offensive line. They just, it really surprised me. I was expecting the Pac-12 offense to be a lot more well-equipped 
And so from that standpoint, I do think it was more talent based that the defense was just that much better than the offense. And I would assume that was largely the case of the previous years before that. I know they had quarterback trouble quite a bit, even worse than the year before. Um, but it's interesting because I know Coach De, uh, Coach DeRuiter, um, when he was at Fresno State, he actually preferred a fast-paced spread offense that was going to score as many points as possible because he thought as a defensive coordinator, that was toughest to defend. And so now they kind of had that or attempted to do that the past couple of years. Now they're going more um, traditional with a slower offense, one that is not going to gamble as much. So it won't hurt you as bad if you go three and out or if you have the big turnover. And if you rely on your defense to get the job done, then that may play well in their favor. But you also have to wonder how much this defense is going to match last year's defense. You're looking at potentially three draft picks, perhaps, in the NFL draft coming from the Golden Bears. So those guys aren't going to be easy to replace. They do return at least six starters on defense. And it's just a lot easier said than done to be as good as you were the year before when you've got at least five spots to replace. Uh, last one for me, um, just kind of assessing the, uh, from what you can tell the mood of the fan base and, and the administration with Justin Wilcox from my vantage point, I think he's doing a pretty good job, but five and seven, seven and six, eight and five, not obviously blowing the doors off. What's, what's your sense of things, um, with kind of, is this, is this a year for him to take a step up? Is that what the fan base is expecting or what's kind of the mood? Uh, I think it's kind of a, a wait and see. Uh, the overall mood is that there, I believe a lot of people do appreciate Justin Wilcox and what he's been able to do. I mean, just the fact that he's improved from year to year over three seasons now is definitely a positive. And to get to eight wins, get a bowl victory, and um, aside from some games where they were just decimated by injuries, they pretty much held their own all season long. Uh, you know, there is some aspect where you look at the Pac-12 North and the only school that has their head coach and their starting quarterback coming back, you would think – that would give them a pretty good advantage among competition. Obviously, those are going to be two of the most critical positions of any football team. But um, I think probably the most encouraging thing, though, before maybe they get over that hump and get to board their uh, a divisional contender, is that they've really stepped up their recruiting game. Uh, this past season, they didn't land a whole ton of four stars, but the bulk of the class, just the average recruit, it really took a step up. They got a lot more names that had a lot of more offers after them. And they did get one four-star there at the end of the cycle with DJ Rogers, a tight end from Washington, who might be able to come in and play right away. And then already for the 2021 class, uh, three four-star recruits out of their four commits. I mean, these are guys that rank up there with some of the guys Chef Tedford was bringing in back uh, you know, about a decade ago now. The time in between there and the change of regimes, uh, recruiting really took a dip and uh, clearly that affected the win-loss column over the last decade or so, too. So it feels like they're getting back up to speed. They got some wins over key rivals with Stanford and UCLA this past season, and now it's kind of a cautious optimism that they can get over the hump and maybe compete for the division. Last one for me, Jackson. Uh, some of the newcomers out there that you think might be able to make uh, some sort of impact. Looks like there's a few guys on the offensive side of the ball that might be uh, coming in and, and doing some things. Yeah, I mean, they totally loaded on offensive weapons in this class. Uh, I mean, two quarterbacks and just a, a ton of running backs, tight ends, uh, receivers, guys that can be interchanged. Um, I mean, tight end receiver hybrids, running back slot hybrids. I mean, they just have a wealth of weapons. And 
it's interesting because they don't lose hardly any of their uh, players at the same positions from last year either. So you're going to have this clash of the new wave talent and the returners. And so they may not have a whole lot of those guys that see the field right away, but I do think DJ Rogers is going to be too good to, to keep off the field. The tight end from Washington who will probably be used more as a slot receiver, I would think. And uh, they did get some good hauls on defense as well. I think maybe Trey Pastor is a guy that was able to come in in the spring that they might try to use him as a nickelback or, or get him on the field pretty early. But I think you're going to see this class really show itself in the next couple of years. I'm just It's hard to pinpoint one or two guys that might play a whole lot this first year with so many players coming back. All right, Jackson Moore, BearTerritory.net, right here, 24-7 Sports Network. You gotta be safe up there, Jackson. Hope, uh, hopefully, you're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. You know, so far, so good. Doing okay. Um, it's definitely changed my schedule. I mean, during the season, I'm bouncing around from the Bay Area to Fresno and covering multiple assignments, and uh, now I'm just sitting at home. So <laughs> I hope you all are doing very well <laughs> yourselves. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Jackson. All right, David. Well, those are previews for Oregon and Cal. Uh, great stuff from Matt and. Jackson, couple of Pac-12 North teams that can, you know, they're going to be in the mix, uh, you know, come the end of the season as far as winning the division, I would think. Yeah, I would say both of them. I think Cal's got a chance. I think the the main thing with Cal is just replacing their defense and then hoping Bill Musgrave doesn't screw up their offense. Uh, be, and I, I do mean that actually sincerely. They rank number one in returning production on Bill Connolly's um, returning production metric. Basically, they return friggin' everybody. So you just don't want to screw that up because usually when you've got that much continuity, you see a big leap in actual, you know, results. Yeah. Uh, it's funny when you say you don't want to screw up the offense, but yeah, it's been yeah, pretty screwed up. It's been screwed. It's been screwed. Maybe you want to unscrew the offense. Yeah. You got a lot of pieces coming back and you just want to make sure you make it into something beautiful. You know, it's, you, you got all the great ingredients coming back. You want to make sure you make it into it a lovely meal. And uh, with Chase Garbers, you got uh, you know, you got the, the MVP of the league, so you, you, they should be able to do something there. But um, you know, seeing Oregon's defense going to be so good, uh, I feel pretty confident that they're going to figure out what they need to do on offense and, and make it work. You know, the I know you have some concerns on the offensive line, but I you know, you know, they could rely on Devin Williams, who's a transfer from USC, a lot. There's they didn't have like all those. Oh, does, stuff. does he play offensive line? He doesn't, but I'm saying like the receivers, it wasn't like you had this like murderous row of receivers that you really loved either. So, but I'm curious to see how it turns out. I, I'm guessing that Mario Cristobal will get it figured out, but you know, like he said, you know, Matt said, you could rely on that defense, even if it's a, a bad offensive game or two that you, you know, you, you get a couple clunkers in there. The defense will probably still hold up. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, we got uh, questions and people have sent them in. I think they were worried that we were going to go on hiatus uh, if we didn't get questions. So we got some sent in. We did get a tweet. I'll start with that. It's from Webfoot at uh, Nat Fodd, N-A-T-T-F-O-D-D. For the mailbag, if all teams can't practice until August and the season starts as scheduled, which teams will thrive and which will falter? Also, I loved having that UCLA guy on the show this time. He's my favorite. Yeah, he's a good, good dude. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. We had a lot of hate I, mail about that guy, but there, at least some people liked him. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, my take on this is, I think, the obvious one, USC. Why? Because they have still top two talent 
But the more they're around Clay Helton, the worse off they are. So if they can only start practicing in like mid-August or something, that's probably great. That's just roll the ball out there and play. Show your natural ability. So USC. I think this is the ideal setup for USC to have a bang-up season. Interesting. All right. Um, I'm going to get, and real quick, I want to make a correction. I think I said it was Justin Wilcox, uh, third year. It's his fourth. He started 2017. I think I said Mario Cristobal. It was his, did I say second year? Or th- it's his third year. So I, I think I got those off by one year. So I didn't update my document. So sorry about that. Uh, but those are done now. I would, you look at guys that have been there for a while. So Justin Wilcox, Mario Cristobal. I talked to USC strength and conditioning coach uh, Aaron Osmus uh, this week, and they have to do a lot. You know, the strength coaches work with these players more, more than what the regular coaches do. It's his second year, so he's already kind of instilled his culture and stuff. Any any school, when you have a, you know co- turnover a head coach, you're Colorado, you're Washington State, and you got to get a whole new staff, including a strength staff, you're trying to put all that stuff together. I think that's a big disadvantage uh, when you don't have all this time together. So the I think the Utahs of the world, that have had the same system for a long time. They're going to be all right. Hey, Stanford's switching out their strength and conditioning coach. There could be some issues there. Um, I feel like there's a lot of potential. You know, anyone that has people coming back, you're going to benefit if it's, you're going to just keep it going because you're doing these zoom conferences or whatever you're doing, trying to get these guys to work out at home. Sometimes they're curling, you know, tin cans or whatever. They, they just don't have much, uh, or they're doing pull-ups in the park. You know, maybe they're pushing their roommate's car, their parents' car around or something like there's, they're not going to have access to all the gym. So I think there's a lot of factors at play, but the people that have had these cultures for a while and established, I think those are going to be easier to, to navigate this offseason. But if they can't get going until August, uh, you, you're going to need some acclimation period beforehand. It could be even a, a reduced fall camp if it's something like that. So, and there, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. There's so many factors at play. But the more people I talk to, the more I'm convinced that if you've made a change in this offseason, like head coach and things like that, uh, you know, we've talked to two teams that had new offensive coordinators, new defensive coordinators. Even though Cal, the defensive side, it wasn't really new. You just don't have a lot of time to inst- you know, install what your um, you know, new systems are. And I think it puts those schools at a bit of disadvantage. I have a question for you. Sure. Where are you in the stages of grief surrounding not being able to pay attention to spring practice and watch spring games? Like, where are you? Are you in denial still? Have you have you still are you still thinking they're going to come in May? Are you at anger? Are you mad that you won't be able to talk about them? Are you bargaining? Are you contacting the back 12 <laughs> and seeing if they'll start spring practice in July? Um, is it depression or have you have you actually reached acceptance? It's I think they're um, in the, the depression stage. The Pac-12 network would help if they would just run football content, which they don't seem to be doing. Um Run all the spring games from last year. Do something. Like, give, show me something, you know? like I Actually, you know what? This sounds like you're in anger still. Maybe anger. There's a little anger there. Well, that's and more the And maybe a little now. bit of bargaining. Like, you want them to do something for you right now. I do. To give you a little bit of that, you know, hit of spring ball. I'm... I'm still. You don't even care about what spring ball. You would just want to watch some spring football. I want to watch some you want to watch, watch some dudes in shorts and shoulder pads 
thud against each other in basically glorified two hand touch. Yeah, that's what you want to see. That's that's what you want to inject into your veins right now. I would love that, and it's obviously not happening. Um, I I mean, I think the Pac-12 Network would do well right now if they showed football games, show the whole season from last year, and you know the the football in sixty, whatever you got to do. Give us some kind of football content. Like that's that's what people want to see. It's tough. Um, I'm still optimistic that there will be sort of a later spring that maybe is more of an extension of fall camp. Oh wow! Um, I I wasn't kidding. You're you're actually in one of the stages of grief right now. Yeah. Because uh, let me tell everyone out there. Can I tell? Can I tell everyone? Can I break some news on here? There's not going to be spring ball. It's not going to happen. It's not. It's just not. Get it? Just what we all want to put our like our karmic energy to is making sure the season starts on time. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to think about something like, hey, I could really use this thing happening. So whatever like good forces are at work in the world, could you make that happen? Football season, not yeah. not spring ball. Spring ball is not happening. So what about there's? I think it's Coastal Carolina. There's a team that's already had all of their spring football practices. Uh, there's some that have had a bunch. And there's some that have had none or one, you know, the last couple of schools we talked to have had like four. How do you even that out? Do you give them an extra week or two of fall camp? Like, how does that come into play? You don't, you don't because spring ball doesn't matter. Okay. It's sort of like, it's sort of like we're all learning about our jobs where we go to like work that we actually didn't ever need to go there. Like we could have always just been doing it from home. Um, it's sort of like that. We're all going to realize when teams that didn't practice in the spring and teams that did look exactly the same as they would have otherwise, that it didn't matter. Spring yeah. ball doesn't matter. Do you think this is off topic? Cause that's what we do. Um, I was thinking about this because you would go, um, whatever you're doing, if you went to the bank and you knew a guy there and you always shook his hand and obviously now you don't shake his hand. Are people going to avoid people more out in public, like after this is over and maybe not shake hands with a random person or, uh, you know, give a what I mean, do you you feel like our behavior is going to change because you realize like, huh, maybe I shouldn't be talking or um, getting close to people out in the world. Who knows what they have? Like, do you think that's going to change? It's so hard to say. I think it's going to depend on the length of time that this happens. So there's some happy talk that this might be done by summer. Um, I tend not to think so because we're still not doing anything as stringent as China did. And China still lasted three months, more or less. Um, But let's say we're back in summer to more or less business as usual. I think it's a blip in everyone's, you know, life radar. Um, and I think they get back to more or less the same behaviors they were up to before. Um, but if it lasts a while and first we're in isolation and second, every time we go out to like the grocery store, we're like, oh, I wonder what germs that person has. And I really hope I don't get, you know, Corona. And we do that for a year, then that really does change behaviors. I think yeah. you, you're, you're hardwiring from like a life of learned social norms isn't going to be disrupted by like three months of weirdness, but call it a year. Yeah, that'll that'll make things odd. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm. It's like anything. I mean, if it's if it's a substantial period of time where your life is disrupted, it's going to change uh, kind of the course of things. And yeah. I think 
those weird social norms, like already, like when I'm walking on the street and partially because it's an active pandemic right now, I am, you know, when I see somebody walking along the sidewalk towards me, I am getting on the grass and like walking, you know, a good six, seven feet away, um, just as like a norm, um, which is probably like a fine habit to get into, too, if you're like a dude walking around like in the <laughs> evening hours, you know, like just avoid people because they're they're probably scared of you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like that's there's going to be things like learned behavior like that, like, oh, you know, why I'll, I'll just keep doing that. Like. Yeah, I'd rather not shake hands. There's some people that were like that already um, that they don't want to shake hands. I bet you there's a lot less handshaking after this is done, no matter how short it is. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think we need to think of something better than the elbow bump because that's really stupid. Um, yeah. Like Hopefully if we're going to do, if we're going to do a new thing, like why don't we just all like salute each other? Like, and not in like a military salute, but like just do like a little, you know, hand wave by the forehead. Just do that. That's what you do. Uh, nice. Uh, we also had an email from Paul, Pac-12 North. He says, hello, champions. You threatened to stop doing the podcast if we stop sending you questions. So here's your question. Which Pac-12 North division team will have the honor of taking second place in the division under my Oregon Ducks? I realize it's possible we falter, but I'm a homer, so I'm placing them as uh, first place in this scenario. Does Cal keep climbing? Does Washington reverse course? Does Stanford bounce back from their decline? Who will it be? What do you think, Dave? I'll go Huskies. Huh. I might go uh I might go Cal. You're going sturdy golden bear? I think I'm sturdy golden bearing it because they got the MVP. Uh I think the defense will still be really good. I think I I've just got a gut feeling the offense is gonna be better. Um Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, with Washington having that turnover and you know having a, a new head coach. That'll be a little bit easier transition, obviously, because it's, uh, you know, the, the culture's still there. It's not like you're replacing everybody. But, uh, you know, you could have a little bit of setback from that. Um, now, we, we saw, like, Ryan Day at Ohio State really excel. Um, maybe it's going to be something like that, too, at uh, at Washington. But I'll, I'll, I'm going to go with Cal right now. All right. Well, great. You're wrong, but great. Nice. All right. Um... We've got Alex from SB. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I can read. I was just, I didn't know. That's why I read the first question because I wasn't sure if you knew where it started. And I did, so I just jumped in. I remember. I know. Uh, Media coverage. Hello, Dave and Ryan. You asked for more questions. You're getting more questions. You only have yourselves to blame if these are bad. My questions this week are related to media coverage. With sports off for the foreseeable future, how do networks like ESPN and the Pac-12 Network fill 24 hours a day? Will they just show classic games because you can only show classic football and basketball games for so long? Luckily for the Pac-12 Network, they have a deep catalog to pull from, like that stunning Colorado-Oregon State men's badminton barn burner from 2013, (laughs) or maybe a series of UCLA Daily Bruin versus USC Daily Trojan flag football games to show to fill the extra hours. What I think the network should do is reach out to you two clowns who are the masters of filling time with nothing. Perhaps you could bring your Disney princess talents to ESPN or do an hour-long segment of breaking down the weekly eye charts that Andrew sends in related to gloves and UCLA's win percentages. On a slightly more serious note, I've been very frustrated for a long while with The Athletic. I know they have a reputation for having great writers and putting out top-quality content, but how in the world does the LA section have a beat writer for every major LA professional team and a USC football beat writer, but no UCLA beat writer for basketball. 
It's not like USC football has been hot stuff recently, and the LA Times and ESPN LA seem to find covering UCLA generates enough clicks. So, WTF, Athletic, can you think of a reason UCLA is getting slighted? Thanks for making our new at-home realities more tolerable, Alex from SB. Ah. Uh, um, thanks, I can Alex. think of a reason. I got a reason. I got a reason. Okay. USC, UCLA has been terrible at everything. <laughs> and so here's the thing about USC. When USC is bad, it remains national news. Um, when UCLA is bad, unfortunately, it's nationally irrelevant. And UCLA has been bad in football now for five years. Four years and bad in basketball, basically, except for one year of Lonzo Ball, bad in basketball for like 10 years. Um, so, look, I, I think there's still a very hardcore set of UCLA fans who probably aren't going to move off of it until they die. Um, but I just don't think it's capture, capturing the eyeballs of um, even, you know, USC melting down under Clay Helton. Does UCLA have a, a, a beat writer for for the athletic that just covers UCLA or no? No, no, no. That's what he's saying is okay. USC, USC does, UCLA does not. So I would say it's a lot of it, excuse me, it's a lot of it's the sports related. You know, if you're not like Kentucky or North Carolina or Duke or something, I, I don't think the athletic has a ton of just basketball beat writers out there. I would think UCLA is big enough that you would have a UCLA beat writer. It might not just be a decision was made. Um, they've expanded quite a bit and, you know, it, UCLA probably wasn't a high priority, but I would think that they were still, they would like to get somebody covering, uh, the Bruins. Maybe they knew with Chip Kelly, they weren't going to be able to go out and cover practices anyway. So there was less, they might've lowered the priority there a little bit, you know, and like David said, basketball hasn't been good. I would think you're going to get Alex, a, a beat writer on the athletic. I could. You know, I, you know what I'll do? I'll send a text to uh, our buddy Stuart Mandel and see what he says on that. But I would guess that it's more about, you know, they've they've been expanding and it's just, you know, something they wanted to do. They just haven't done it yet. That would be my guess. Here, you text him right now, and right. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to talk about this. Okay. Um, also, just a little speculation on my part. UCLA at different moments in its history has not necessarily been the like most media friendly organization in the entire world. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn there. Um, so I know some national writers in years past, and I don't think Stu, but I know some, um, have not necessarily wanted to cover UCLA because they get a lot of no's. Um, a lot of no, we can't do this. No, we can't do that. That sort of thing. So I don't know if that informs any decision making of a new startup as to who they're going to spend resources on and why. But I know that that has played a role in the past and whether or not, you know, glowing features get written about UCLA or not. Um, so there's some there's some stuff there. Um, but I, I think it's I mean, the, the simple reality is USC is a bigger brand in athletics than UCLA in the athletics. People, you know, spend money to care about football and basketball, unfortunately, nothing else. Um, so that's just the reality. Um, now UCLA can get back there, maybe. Maybe Mick Cronin wins like nine national titles in 10 years. Who knows? Um, yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. And then, I, you know, uh, my apologies to the Pac-12 Network if they are showing football. When I looked, they weren't. I've heard, I've start, seen people on the message boards and stuff Did you saying, just apologize to the Pac-12 Network? Well, maybe they're showing football now. The last... You know, I haven't checked in the last few days, but when I had checked before, it wasn't happening. But hopefully they're doing that and not 
badminton and, and things. But you got seven networks. I mean, just play football around, like around the clock. Like it, the, people would actually go watch it. You know, like hey, I want to see uh, Washington State's you know game against Oregon State. It's like all right, we'll play it all day. You know, whatever. I want to see. I want to see offense versus defense. Oregon State spring game, 2014. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, Did you yeah. just get excited when I was saying that? A little bit. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we got Kyle up in uh, Seattle, March Madness replacement. Hey, guys, or hi, guys, sorry. Love the show. I wanted to know your thoughts on losing March Madness and what do and what to do with all the athletes that lost the end of their season slash March Madness opportunity. I've heard some pundits suggest letting the players get an extra year, but the issue I have with that is roster management of having an added senior class as well as uh, – why would they get a full year back for just a couple of weeks of games? So I suggest August Madness. Hmm. Uh, each team either still alive in the conference tournament or eligible for an at-large bid can participate. Rosters uh, must be from previous year, so no new freshmen as this allows. Seniors, uh, th- I'm sorry, so this allows seniors their August Madness opportunity. We will literally pick up from where we left off with conference tournaments and then play out the NCAA tournament. Besides Major League Baseball, not much is going on in this time. It's before the start of the next season and ensures the kids get to play out their eligibility and go for glory. What are your thoughts? Please forward to Champagne Larry for immediate action. The truth is we all know Champagne Larry likes to roll large, right? (laughs) That's uh, Kyle in Seattle. The reality is that the best teams from that last year will be the worst teams in the August Madness because most of their players will go into the NBA draft and not under any circumstances participate in this. You're not yeah. going to see you might see the graduating seniors who are not moving on to the NBA come back and play, but you're not going to see the teams with the best players because the best players go to the NBA. I think, you know, Maybe doing something, it sucks to lose March Madness, lose the Pac, you know, the Pac-12 tournaments and all the conference tournaments, the majority of them. But having something where you'd have like an exhibition or, you know, some kind of tournament where they wouldn't do the Pac- the conference tournaments, but hey, who are the teams that were playing the best and invite them uh, to do, you know, some kind of tournament where you do that. I think that would be really interesting. And like you said, everyone's eligible. A lot of the, the best teams aren't going to be good because their best players that were freshmen and one and duns, they're gone. But yeah, it might be kind of fun, uh, like an off season sort of thing when when things get back. You know, you could raise money for charity or something. But unfortunately, I don't think there's anything you can do to like finish the season at this point. Like the season's over, and uh, I it just doesn't seem like there's a great solution to do that, which sucks. Um, you know, they're gonna they're still talking. The athletic directors. It's funny. Um, we had a, there was a, a live call this week. USC did like a live radio show and they had their athletic director, Mike Bone on. And he said that every morning, all the PAC 12 athletic directors and Larry Scott have a conference call to kind of talk about all you know things like that, where the eligibility, it's mostly for like the spring sports, the ones that were just getting started would players be eligible. So they're working with the NCAA. So I think that's more realistic, but as far as the sports that were ending, it just doesn't seem like there's a great solution there. Yeah. Yeah. But, All right, this is tr- yeah. Do you have more you want to say? No, no. I thought uh, I, I thought it was, you know, I, I was happy to hear that the Pac-12 ADs were all meeting because it's 
they're all like kind of figuring out this on the fly. And there, there's been a couple stories about what if there was no college football, how devastating that would be to the athletic departments. And, and I think one of the ADs put it, I think Pete Thamel wrote a story on it. And one of the ADs said, basketball in most schools will pay for itself. Football pays for everything else. So if football is disrupted or doesn't exist, I mean, there's going to be massive fallout. And you're going to talk about sports that are going to go away, uh, sports teams for different programs, because they're just not going to be able to afford to do them. Well, yeah. I mean, look, if we're sitting here in fall and football season isn't happening, do you know what that also means? There's going to be entire universities that are going under because nobody's coming back to school to pay whatever forty thousand dollars a year to sit at home doing online education like it's just not and they're not going to invest that kind of money if the economy is still in the tank i mean if we're sitting here and they're not having football season in the fall it means the entire thing is still shut down um yeah so probably bigger fish to fry and if everything here's what i don't all you economic people like if everything is shut down and done just Pause the whole thing. Just say, you know what? The stock market, what it is right now, that's what it is. We're freezing the whole thing. We'll come back to it in three months. Everyone go live your lives. Just do that. It'll be fine. Okay. We'll all come back to it. And we'll all just be like, hey, you know what? This is the year where we're all just going to fart around at home and we're going to give food to everybody. And then we can start up this whole capitalist enterprise in a year. Do that. Yeah. That'll be fine. Everyone do that. Anyway. Uh, real quick before you get into the next question, Dave, Stuart Mandel says, uh, we're still a very young company. It's going to take time to build out a complete network. So, looks like UCLA's on the radar. They just haven't, you know, they've they've been adding a lot of writers. This is probably going to pause it, obviously, with the coronavirus. But uh, so they are they are a young company. They've only been around a couple of years now, I think. So they're still building it out. So there's hold out hope that they'll have a Bruin uh, beat writer for the Athletics soon. Tremendous. All right, this is uh, Sean from Ohio. Guys, since you threatened to not do the show unless you got questions, I have one to keep the mediocrity flowing. Uh, per previous quotes, USC is keeping all possibilities open in the future. On Andy Staples' recent podcast, he floated the idea of the Big 12 rating the Pac-12 and taking the following teams for conference membership. Arizona, ASU, USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington. If that would happen, what would you venture to guess would be Champagne Larry's plan going forward? A pack six with the leftovers, or would he attempt to raid the Mountain West to keep the conference afloat? Oh, I think he would try to get, like, vice chair of that new Big 12. I think he would jump ship along with everyone else. Um, but, I don't know, try to move those universities to China? What do you think? Yeah, I think if that – I mean, I think it's a very unlikely scenario. But if that exact scenario happened – the Pac-12 would cease to exist. Like, it would just go away. Um, I don't think, you know, you lose, like, if USC left, you know, that's like the Pac-12 had their, like, lower leg and foot blown off. But you could still, you know, you can get a prosthetic, you can come back from that, and you can backfill and figure it out. If you lose Los Angeles, all of Arizona, and the two best, you know, brands in the Pac-12 North, that's like you've lost your heart, your liver, your head, uh, you know, all your toes, your, your left arm, uh, your right. Sh I mean, there's just you've lost too much. There's no recovering from that. So that's that's a catastrophic to me. That's a catastrophic injury. And I just don't think there would be any fixing it. It would more likely be the Mountain West would try to incorporate the teams that are left and and kind of go from there. I just don't think the Pac-12 
could exist at that point. I, I don't know. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I don't think the Pac-12 would exist. Um, I think um, it'd be interesting to see the ramifications. Like, would Cal and Stanford, like, try to do, like, a West Coast Ivy thing? Would they just be like, I'm done with revenue athletics? Because um, I know, like, I mean, I know there is institutional commitment to athletics, and I don't want to, you know, talk down about it. But, I mean, Cal's still in a financial hole from trying to do all their athletic crap. Maybe they just give it up at that point. You know, just say, okay, we're going to do the uh, the Ivy League thing and not, you know, you know, go go too hard about it. I don't know. It would be really interesting to see what would happen in that scenario. Yeah. And that, but the Larry Scott would have to fight that, though. And so you'd have to fight against it. And it would be basically correspond with the the television deal, I would think, if that's going to happen. But, you know, there's no way you could get any kind of TV deal if USC, UCLA, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, Arizona State. Arizona aren't in it, you know, like there's just no way you could get any kind of real TV deal. It would be more, I mean, you wouldn't even get anything good as like conference USA or whatever, you know, like the American athletic, like you just wouldn't get anything like that with those markets gone. So, um, yeah, there, he would be, I, yeah, he would be gone. I I just, like I said, I think Larry Scott would have to jump ship that it would just, I think it would collapse. That's just too big of a blow. Yeah. Uh, all right. Is this me? This is you. Slow pace kills college football. This is from Frank in uh, Sacramento. I've gone to two to three college football games per season and one to two pro games uh, for about 20 years. NFL games usually run about three hours on average, and college games have ballooned to almost four hours in that time. ESPN jams way more commercials into games than the NFL allows the networks to run. As a result of this four-hour slog, college game attendance is down. And those of us who do show up are just part of a studio of uh, audience. Hashtag cut college game time, Frank and Sacramento. Uh, I don't know the stats as far as. I don't you know, think it's the commercials. I don't think it I, is. I, I think, think it's, it's college the, takes the, the clock, the clock stoppages. Yeah. And I love that. I like the college games, the length they are. I don't, I don't, I don't ever watch a game like, man, yeah, this is going I've, on too long. I've never, well, I, I, I definitely have. <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> I think you were underestimating how many UCLA football games I've watched in the last couple <laughs> years. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't really run into this. I, I, this critique is always one of the more strange ones to me. Like whenever, when I found myself critiquing baseball length, it was when I ceased to be a fan of the sport. Like I was, and it was the first that that came before the other. Like I was like, Oh, this, this is boring. I need to. And then it finally occurred to me, Oh, I just don't like watching this. I, I don't I don't want to do this for any length of time, but certainly not three hours. Um, I'll watch I'd watch a six hour college football game, whatever. Yeah, like, I don't care because I like watching the sport. Um, and, you know, if it takes forever than to march downfield because the clock stop and every first down or whatever. OK, that's fine. Um, so I think that that critique, I mean, maybe maybe you just don't like college football that much. I don't know. I never get the stuff like too many bowl games. The games are too long. Like screw that. I want to. Oh, want too much games. football. Too much football. Yeah. What, what is? Wouldn't that you be? Peak? Wouldn't you be killing yourself right now just to get some football? Come on. Come just, on. People. Just, just one quarter of a spring game. Just give me one quarter. Yes. One sliver of a spring. And Dave game. hates spring football, so you're, that's what's te- that's what it's mm-hmm. telling you. All right. Uh, this is Keon in the Bay Area. Self quarantine. 
Uh, gents, if you had to pick, ooh, this is my kind of question. If you had to pick <laughs> one Pac-12 head coach to be self-quarantined with in their house, which coach would be your first pick and your last pick? Looking forward to many, many more podcasts to get us all through this. Keon and oh, Barry. Keon. Right. Okay, so you've got a few options here. Um, I think, just off the bat, I think my pick would be Herm. And the reason I would pick Herm is because I think I would come out of it with, like, I think I would be motivated every day. Like, I think I would be, like, in a good mindset every day. Like, I think it would be positivity, getting you motivated, getting you up, getting you, like, you know, just doing every day. Like, find something new to do. Find a new project. Get active. Um, Kyle Whittingham would be a good pick, too. I think you would end up in the best shape of your life. Right. Because he'd be like, no, we're doing workouts. All we're doing for the next couple of hours are squats. And you would do, you know, two hours of squats every day. Your legs would fall off, but <laughs> they'd be very strong. Um, who else would be good? Nick Rolovich would be kind of fun, I think. Yeah. Maybe a little weird. Um, I, my, my first thought was uh, Kyle Whittingham. And for a couple of different reasons. Well, I mean, well, I mean. He seems like fun, but he has a lot of outdoor activities that you could continue to live your life going bear hunting or whatever he likes to do. You know, you're go he's up on the slopes. I, I feel like if you were going to like, and you don't know how long you're going to be quarantined for, he's got a bunker. He's probably got, you know, tons of food and water. Um, you're out there, you know, chopping wood. I feel like Kyle Whittingham, if you're really going to go like, I want to survive the apocalypse, I'm going to ride on his horse. You know, I'm ready for, I'm going to go with him, but. Herm is great. I think Nick Rolovich would be uh, a lot of fun. I think like a Mario Cristobal would be would cool to, to hang out with if you're quarantined. Um, I think there's some good options. I'm a little, I don't know. Is there, is there other ones that you would you, you just kind of like to be with? Um, no, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the bunch. Um, my, and my last pick would be either Chip or Carl Burrell. Um there's a familiarity breeds contempt thing going on there. Um, but also Carl, nice guy. And all of my dealings with him were in a professional capacity, but one of the more boring individuals I've ever interacted with. Yeah. Um, and Chip just kind of a jerk. So I don't really want to want to hang with him for several months. The uh, yeah. So the boring thing would be tough. Like Carl Durrell seems like a, you know, a really nice guy. You know, Clay Helton's a nice person, but just like, I, I don't know if I want to be stuck with them for a long time. I've actually had a social beer with Chip Kelly and he seemed, he was kind of fun. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him at the bottom. Um, you know, if you're like a media person dealing with him, but if you're living with him, I think it might be a little bit different story. I might go like a David Shaw. Like, I, I don't know. Like he's just like for him, it's like, you know, I think he's kind of run his course there at Stanford. Uh, yeah, you'd learn to like you'd learn to like play chess and shit. It'd be great. Yeah, I don't know. I just I'm not sure that's gonna be my quarantine uh, buddy. No. Um, but that's a really good question. I um, love that question. That was a great one, Keon. Yeah, thanks, Keon, for that. Uh, this one is from Osmond. Uh, this is the real Doctor Oz. So he was a UCLA class of 2010. Um, hypothetical question, uh, greetings gentlemen and the bearded one, longtime listener and fan. I've been saving this hypothetical question for the doldrums of the off season. Imagine a college football league where the coaching resources, et cetera, 
are the same for every school. That is, they are constants. The variable here is that you must decide on one positional player to play all 11 positions on offense, defense, and special teams. The, quote, player you pick is a composite average of the starters throughout the league at that position. For example, if you pick wide receiver, the player would be the median starting wide receiver in the league. What position would you pick for your football team? I personally think the best position would be either tight end or defensive end. They have the best combination of size and athleticism. What also, a great question. Yeah. Oh, my God. Also, yeah, would keep you, going. Yeah, would your answer change if this league was a composite of the SEC starting averages instead of the Pac-12? Would it change your answer if the hypothetical player was a composite of the two, the top 2% to, to ever play that position collegiately? Thanks for all you do. Back to my 12-hour shift at the hospital. Please stay safe and at home if you can. P.S. I was a little disappointed to learn David has actual jobs other than bro. Uh, I was hoping you were a trophy, quote, <laughs> husband. The I, real yeah, Dr. I was, Oz. I was well, first of all, well. great question, Dr. Oz. And thank you uh, for your service out there and being on the front lines trying to combat this horrible virus. But thank you for that and the great question. Oh, my God. What a good question. Um, okay. So league average, Pac-12. That's where we're starting? Yeah. So, league average, Pac-12. I think – so you've got to have somebody who could actually play some offensive and defensive line. So defensive end, you're getting the athleticism, but you're also getting somebody with some size, right? Yeah. So I like the defensive end pick. Um, I think defensive end for league average is correct. Um, I think even more so than tight end, because league average tight end, you're getting into actually some small guys playing tight end. Um, but defensive end, you're typically still going to be like north of 230, 240, even if you're league average, right? I would think so. I mean, I think it's easy on the defensive side because no, no, no. It, but it's it's one position player to play every single position on the team. I think right. is what he's looking for here. Oh, so is it defensive ends playing on offense too? Oh, oh, okay. Offense, defense, and special teams. Okay, um, interesting. So. I think I love the defensive end or the outside, probably outside linebacker, but typically what you're going to go with the guy that has his hand on the ground sometimes, but drops back into coverage other times. That's in the three, four. If you're talking about some, some outside linebackers, like a weak side outside linebacker, that guy's like maybe six oh five eleven sometimes, like more or less a like a weird hybrid nickel safety linebacker. Like you yeah. don't know. I, yeah, I don't want that guy. I want the but. So I guess it's hard because it, there's a lot of different defenses. So, it, you know, some positions, I mean, if you're an air raid, you don't really have a tight end. You know, this, so. is, this is the area where I think it changes when you go to the top 2%. Because if it's the top 2% of the people who've ever played the position, then I think you drop down into linebackers. Because when you're talking about the top 2% there, I mean, you're talking about some stud athletes. Like linebackers running a 4-4 at like 250. Because those dudes, they can play anywhere. I mean, Miles Jack at UCLA was playing corner. Um, like, those guys, those freaks can play anywhere. So I think that's, when you get into the freak categories, I would rather have a freak linebacker playing everywhere than a freak anything else. Yeah. Right? I still think I'm going to go with a linebacker. Maybe it's the strong side linebacker. I want the I want the guy that's, can you know, if you had to put him up, uh, you know, next to a guy with his hand on the ground, but you could drop him back into coverage. It just seems you're going to get the most coverage that way. Um uh, 
If we do the SEC, though, I think you do have to at least consider the idea of playing one of their defensive tackles, their league average defensive tackle, just everywhere. Yeah. Well, but that's see, I was thinking this is more of like pick a one defensive spot for everything, but if they got to play offense too, yeah. Um, I just Those don't dudes know. Didn't run. Yeah. It. Shit, Imagine yeah. a team of three hundred and thirty pound athletic defensive tackles playing everywhere on offense. You would just run option, right? So do we think? Do we think that you can't pick an offensive player? I don't. So this is the thing: is I'm biased, but I don't think offensive players are generally they they don't. There's nothing like, especially when you get down into league average stuff. It's like no, those guys can't play multiple positions, especially no. on the offensive line. No, but like um, bad line defensive very, linemen. If you're a bad defensive lineman, you can switch the offense. If you're a bad offensive lineman, you're just done. Yeah, if so, you're a bad offensive lineman, you're gonna go drive a forklift. Yeah. <laughs> um. um Maybe like a, if you're talking top two percent quarterbacks ever, because most of the time we're talking about pretty good athletes at that point. You know, like Tim Tebow could have played in a, at a lot of different positions. He still still wouldn't have been an offensive lineman. But you're gonna have um, like the Tom Brady's in there too. Like, top, you don't, top you two don't... Per, top two percent tight ends. I mean, top two percent tight ends. I could go with. I could. Yeah, I but could... even he's right that tight ends the best position on offense to to do this. Unless you're including fullbacks. If you say top 2% of fullbacks all time and play them everywhere, I think you could probably do that. Because yeah. there have been some really athletic fullbacks who are also big dudes. Your argument for defensive tackle, I might even switch to defensive end and and just say, if it's SEC or top 2%, that, okay, are they going to be able to throw the football well? Do we know if they're going to catch? Like, maybe. But I would like that offensive line of big defensive linemen and, you know, a fullback two you know, two of them in the backfield, just run, like, you're going to run like a wing T or some shit and just <laughs> let those athletic guys run. You know, like I'm, I'm, I think I would rather go bigger guy on defense, athletic up front and just run a more, you know, an old school kind of offense and just be kick ass of on defense and, still be able to run the ball on offense. I, you could get those guys that could run. So I, I think that's the, that's where I would go most of the ways now. I think. I've okay. Myself. All right, all right. Well, well, let's, let's, let's do this. Okay. So if you had a team of Domicon Sues, right, let's yeah. say that versus a team of, and I'll just use them just because I already used them, but miles jacks, right? Okay. Like the super athlete, but more like 240 pounds versus Sues, like whatever, 320. So, yeah. obviously, on offense, the Sues would be able to immediately get a push, right? Yes. But they're not running away from a Miles Jack, right? Right. On but, the other end, is any Sue catching a Miles Jack? Yeah, but I think, is Miles Jack, Miles Jack going to have any holes to run through? But does he need them? He can just run past these guys. Like, think about it. Like, think about a Sue playing cornerback. He, I mean, what did Sue run at the combine? Like, I think he ran a pretty good time. Yeah, but is he swiveling his hips and doing that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's imagine, a matchup problem. It's a matchup problem on both ends. It is, but imagine 
what the defensive line looks like a bunch of Sues, and you have you don't have regular offensive linemen blocking for Miles Jack. You have those guys are going to get knocked backwards. Like Miles Jack is not going to be able to slow down Indominus Sue. So you get the snap. There's four or five Indominus Sues in the backfield already. Like that's a nightmare. The, the, that just reminded me of that like classic McSweeney's thing, which is um, how many eight-year-olds do you think you could take in a fight as a grown man? <laughs> what? So who who came up with that? What was it? That? Was a it was a McSweeney's article? You know, like the it's like a online funny thing. Uh, but it was how many eight-year-olds do you think you could take in a fight? And the it really comes down to if they're coming one at a time, probably an infinite number, right? Right. Like it would just be until you get okay, tired. Until you get tired. <laughs> But if they if they if they jumped on you in mass, like if eight of them jumped on you, I mean, you might get overwhelmed pretty quickly. Right. So it's it's kind of a it's that's the question. Would would there be eight miles jacks tackling um, the Sioux who has the ball? Right. And that could happen. Whereas the other scenario where the miles jack on the outside just runs past the Sioux playing cornerback. What do you do then? I, I just think the scrimmage, line of scrimmage is where the Miles Jack is going to have issues. Like, yeah, he'll break one and then no one will catch him. But I just think there's going to be so many that just get stuffed in the backfield because there's no way you're stopping that many Indomitian Sioux coming at you. I mean, whether if they ran like a goal line defense, like what the hell would you do? Like, I don't know. Like, it's just. <laughs> okay. This is my new favorite question of all time. There's been a lot of good ones. I think I, I can't remember where it was. I saw someone that was addressing that question you said about the eight-year-olds. And you're like, yeah, you basically back yourself into a, like a stall, like a bathroom stall. And they just let them come in one at a time and you just start bashing their heads in. Like, you know, it's, it's weird talking about trying to beat up eight-year-olds. But No, I yeah. actually think it's, um, if you're ever interviewing somebody for a job, I think it's a great test. It's a great test question because you're testing two things. One are they going to be cool with it when you're like three years in, you're just saying weird stuff because you've known that person for three years. And two, um, it's problem solving. Like if you can't figure out how you'd answer that question, like you don't have a very elastic brain, right? Yeah. What, what were your, what was your answer to that one? Or what did you think? Um, it's basically, I mean, you've got a, you've, you've got to isolate yourself in a situation where you can just like eliminate them one by one by one by one. Um, and you obviously have to steal yourself emotionally, um, because the, the reality is you're going to be killing a lot of eight year olds and that's, you know, <laughs> that's a lot to weigh on your soul. Um, so you've got to get yourself in a mindset, probably take some drugs. You know, there's a lot that goes into your prep for it. Um, do you get a weapon but, or do they have weapons or that it's just a hand? Well, hand. that's, but that's scenarios you can build in. Right. So, okay. If they all have weapons and you don't, how does that change? If those weapons are edged weapons, how does that change? If they're blunt, does that change things? You know, all these are important questions that need to be answered. Yeah. I mean, if, if weapons were involved in any capacity outside of I have a weapon and they don't, that's going to lower the number because whatever weapon I have, unless, you know, you got the machine, but whatever, it's like it would lower the number because the fact that they have a weapon, they could get through, you know, you're, you're going to let your guard down for a second and whatever weapon that is, is going to hurt you. And then 
then you're kind of screwed. So well, and if I, we were talk if we were talking ten year olds, I'd be a little bit more concerned because you can have varying degrees of size in a ten year old. Like some ten year olds are almost to their like full grown height by that point. Yeah. Whereas like eight, not really. No, they're all going to be like kind of shrimpy, not very, not a lot of strength. So even if they had like a bat or whatever, as long as I could then grab the bat away from the first one, well, then I have a bat now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, it's just. But if there's like 50 bats swinging at you, like that's, that's a thing. Like, yeah, if... yeah, no. And if, if that's happening, even if you do have a bat, there's only so many of those that you can block uh, yeah. before you you get pummeled by bats. So, I mean, like, what? so how many bat-wielding eight-year-olds do you think you could take in a fight if you didn't have a bat? So say say you don't have the, the, the you don't have a bathroom stall to back into, right? Okay. You're surrounded by eight eight-year-olds, or however many eight-year-olds with baseball bats, and you don't have one, but you could always grab one from the first one that attempts to attack you. But while you're grabbing that bat, from the eight-year-old, the other ones are hitting you. So how long do you think you could last? How many of them do you think you could take down before you would succumb? Okay, so I would say in that scenario, say I'm surrounded by 10 eight-year-olds. I think I could do it because you can rush one, get the bat, and start bashing. I think when you get to closer to 20, now you have, like, there's not just one circle around you. Now there's two. And I think yeah, it's like one of those fight scenes in a movie where you just see the people in the background like doing dance moves because they're just waiting for their turn. Yes, I think like one circle of eight year olds around me, I think I could handle. I think Bru when you bruised and battered, but you could handle it. But when you're talking about a second circle, like it would take you, you would get bruised and battered to get that first circle down. But then there's a second circle and you don't if you're taking on multiple eight year olds and you're going to be injured at this point. And, you know, maybe you have two bats, so you're, you've grabbed two bats and you're kind of double lightsaber. <laughs> but I think that's where, so I would say I could do 10, I couldn't do 20. I don't okay, know so you you'd say like probably like you get through 16, 17, and then the final three just batter you into a bloody bowl. I'm pole. probably done, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. But, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting, that's the word. Um, <laughs> all right, this is from our man Hitlerday. Um, Gemini and uh, it's one of those umlauts. Bootes is that how you would do it in German? Oh, geez. Uh, oh, with it. So it's got B O O T E S, and the second O's got the two dots above it. I don't know how to pronounce any German. Uh, yeah, we'll go boots. Gemini boots. Okay, I wish I, you boys would. I don't know what that means, and I'm not gonna look it up. Sorry, today you're, I'm, the, you're I'm the end tired. Today. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to look it up either. <laughs> I wish you boys would have Angie Machado on more often. She's far and away your best guest. Aw, it's a nice thing he said. Yeah. Um, Angie is great. Um, all right, one. David gave a good rundown of UCLA's returning and departing personnel, but didn't discuss the guy I'm most curious about, running back Demetric Felton. He's got a little under one. He, he ha, he's got. Mm, Hithody, come on. Syntax, buddy. He has a little under 1,000 yards from scrimmage in 2019, but two-thirds of them are passing yards. How is he used in the offense, and what's the significance of the weird split? Um, so at the very beginning of the year, they tried to run him out of the backfield. He's not really a between-the-tackles running back. He's more of if Chip was still running something similar to his Oregon offense, it would be more like how D'Anthony Thomas was, role, was used. Um, they split him out quite a bit. He was a receiver 
more or less um, his first few years in the program. Um, first, yeah, three years in the program, and then as a redshirt junior, he moved into a permanent running back role. But even then, he was he was splitting out a ton, um, catching the ball out of the backfield, but also just out of the slot. Um, so that's why you kind of see that um, he showed off a lot of big play potential. Um, couple of times out of the backfield, but more often it was out of the slot. So UCLA has a ton of running back bodies. Um, real question whether any of them are good, um, but it might allow Felton to play a little bit more true receiver this year, which is probably in the way the offense is constructed now more of a fit for him. Um, but we'll see. Uh, two, the differential in UCLA's defensive yards allowed last year was crazy. Ranked number 52 nationally against the run, but 129 nationally against the pass. I can't figure out why that should be. The seven DBs in the rotation look pretty talented to me when I last did film study on the Bruins in 2018. Their 24-7 composite talent averages out to a four-star, and their DB coach, Paul Rhodes, is a former Power 5 head coach in D.C. who was just hired away by Arizona. David also said they have the benefit of a very good pass rusher in Odigazua. How do you square that circle? Well, um, we had a couple of different theories about this. Um, one thing we heard was that um, they kind of, because they had so much experience, they tried to layer in a little bit too much complexity into what they were trying to do at the beginning of the year. And it rapidly devolved and also eroded some confidence in the group. But also, and this is something I had mentioned when we were talking about Paul Rhodes getting hired away by Arizona, the reality is basically everybody in that DB group regressed um, from year to year. Uh, the only one where you might make some kind of mitigating comment was Darnay Holmes because he was a little bit dinged up most of the year. But he had a much worse junior year than he had a sophomore year. And Elijah Gates went from a really promising redshirt freshman at the, at the end of 2018 to... I, I, for, through the first week of spring ball, he was third string at corner um, and he was a starter uh, at the end of 2018 and then at the beginning of 2019. So they've had some weird player development problems. Um, guys who were highly rated and who had some experience uh, turned out to not actually have developed very well. Um, one other thing that was what was happening was Quentin Lake, who was probably one of the better players in the secondary in 2018. Uh, he was hurt for much of the year um, at safety, um, so that didn't help. Um, so there were a lot of different factors, but generally speaking, um, the whole group kind of regressed. Um, and then three, uh, David indicated there are systemic problems at UCLA. Do those stop with the head coach, or is this a university-level issue? As far as I recall, the last great coach the Bruins had was Terry Donahue, and even he stopped fielding great teams at the end of the 80s. Is this just a 30-year run of bad luck? Uh, no, it's not just bad luck. Um, it's not even mostly bad luck. I think it's largely um, bad management of the program, and that's not necessarily what's happening right now, but more just decades and decades of mismanagement. Um, a lot of terrible coaching hires over the years, um, hires that nobody else in the league really would have made. Um, UCLA has consistently hired coaches that nobody wanted, um, that no, that were not in demand in any way. Chip Kelly was basically the first time they've done that in a long, long time. Um, and we can see how well that worked out. Uh, but, you know, when you're hiring Carl Durrell, not and Colorado hiring Carl Durrell at least is justifiable because of the experience he got at UCLA. But Carl Durrell was a his top shelf experience was as a not really the offensive coordinator for Colorado and Washington under Neuheisel and then a wide receivers coach at the Denver Broncos. And then Rick Neuheisel, who 
quarterbacks coach at, at the uh, Baltimore Ravens, and his career was dead. Jim Mora, whose career was dead. Um, they they do this. Um, so it was bad. A lot of bad head coach hires um, over the years, and then it's just it's been a lot of you know. I think historically UCLA has not been committed to athletics in the same way as other schools in the league, um, and I think that's changed in the last oh eight, nine years. Um, basically Jim Mora did a lot of good, um, in terms of, uh, getting booster buy-in and, um, and getting people motivated to first build the football facility and then, um, invest some money in the program. And that's continued now. Um, Chip Kelly's hire was an example of that, um, going out and getting the top name on the market and it just, it hasn't worked out. Um, but they are starting to invest the money in the program. It's just, um, it's not, it's just not working out well with chip. So when I said this, I don't remember exactly the context that I said systemic problems. I think chips program, like in specific has systemic issues. Um, just player development, personnel management, roster management, recruiting. And I think that's all still valid and true. I don't think the systemic uh, problems of UCLA are still as prevalent. Um, but definitely at the, at the UCLA football level, um, I think there's problems up and down that entire organization. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. Hit the day. Sorry we didn't look up your uh, your reference this time, but we're it's been a long day. You know, we're uh, we're, we're not in the mood, I guess. Right. <laughs> so we went from talking about eight year olds to me having to provide like coherent talk about UCLA for five minutes. Yeah. And we should, really should have slipped that. We could have. We could have put that earlier. I stepped yeah. out for a few minutes and just, you know, had a cigarette and then came back. No, I'm just kidding. I don't smoke, yeah. but um, but I could have, I guess. That would have been good. You could have taken it up in that time. Oh, breaking news. I got an email while we were recording. While you were going through that, I was reading the email because, you know, I wasn't really listening. Um, Hermosa Beach is closing the beaches as of Saturday morning, 6 a.m. The strand, the sand, no one can go down. They're going to close it all off. They're going to close parking lots, too. Yeah, well, it's because a bunch of idiots keep doing, keep going out there and congregating in groups. Yeah, there was when I, like I said, when I went out, there was some people, but it was like it was mostly small groups. There's just too many of them. Yeah, there's too many small groups. So I guess, I guess you kind of have to do it. But oh well, I'll try to get another run in before that, and I'll figure out some place. They have a, a trail you can run on, so maybe I'll do that if they don't close that. I don't know. I but. mean, in Italy, I, I have a friend who's in Italy who's like posting about it and they've got it now where you can't even take a walk around your house. You've got to stay inside. And if you're if you're going anywhere, it better be for a damn good reason. Wow. So. Ugh, crazy. Well, these are different times and uh, we'll you know, we'll keep trying to bring you these podcasts every week to uh, provide a little normalcy i guess i mean as abnormal as our podcasts are but if they're part of your routine maybe we'll keep it a little bit more normal but those those are some great questions today i'm, I'm really impressed with what they sent in yeah everyone did an incredible job um dr oz keon you two in particular but hit the day those questions were on point and it even started with a compliment of one of our guests everyone brought their a-game i'm really proud of all of you uh and you should all be proud of yourselves yeah very much so all right uh well Thanks, uh, Dave, for doing all the stuff. I know, you know, you're not a big fan of work, so thank you for coming in and putting some work in. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, thanks to all the listeners and everyone out there uh, keeping the show going. We do appreciate it. Thanks for all the questions and all the comments. Make sure you check out the Reddit page. Tweet at us, all those fun things. That's David. I'm Ryan. We are the Podcast of Champions. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.